I'm Dr. Jim Drakeley, University of Illinois. And I'm uh, Phil Cardoso, an associate professor at the University of Illinois. And we just uh, have a link to provide on a paper, on a symposium review that we have on nutrition, nutrition strategies for improved health, production, and fertility during the transition period at the Journal of uh, Dairy Science. A common question when we suggest, for example, hey, your prepartum diet, if you're doing one uh, dry diet, dry TMR, that's fine, or if you're doing a close-up refresh 30 days before, that's fine too. On, we recommend 1,200 grams or 1,300 grams of uh, metabolizable protein on that diet. Yeah. And then people get caught up on, okay, but with what intake you're telling me, right? right, right. You're telling me that my cows need to have 16 kilos per day or they have to have 10 kilos per day or 14 kilos per day. And I think the point is making sure they're getting the nutrients, right? Because right. the intake is going to be impacted by so many things that I or, you know, any requirement, it's going to be difficult to have access on do you have overcrowding on your pan yeah. do you have facilities where heat stress really uh, uh dump uh, uh, cows intake uh do you have your uh, uh heifers or first lactation together with uh, uh more mature cows or some competition may happen right uh so i think that you know that's a good concept that you need to have the nutrients in the amount of intake that you usually can have, right? Yeah. So some people get bump up on, well, I, my whole life that I get 12 kilos of intake, right? Uh, the magic is how can you fit that? But I think if cows, they allow for perhaps more intake because of comfort, because of other things, that may allow then for the diet to be perhaps less dense and that allows for perhaps a cheaper diet. Right. So, right. So if I'm using uh, a bypass soybean meal type of product, or if I'm using blood meal, and now I can use that because I have certain amount of intake and that fulfill my requirement. But if I don't have that, I may have to go to a really more maybe bioavailable, more expensive source. Right. So cows can eat less with more. Does, does that make sense to you? Or? Yeah, it does. And it, it's, I agree that it's another area that people get caught up on. And it is, it is, it can be tricky to, to fit all those things in because it, as you say, it is the amount per day that's needed. And, and sometimes we're, we're kind of going in different directions with these different things. So getting, getting the whole package is, is not necessarily easy. I think, People get, get hung up on the, you know, how many grams of metabolizable protein we need. We don't really know that number very well. I think the, you know, the new uh, CNCPS numbers are 1,300 grams a day or, or more, and, and that's quite a bit. Um, but, you know, if people have 1,280 on their calculated formula, that's, that's probably close enough. Mm -hmm. And I think people get too worried about the, you know, the absolute number rather than trying to make sure that we're in the, we're in the, the correct area with, with all those things. And I think one of the things that intake really maybe bring a little bit more on the confusion when people say, hey, you need to have at least this much. And I usually 
I remember talking about, you know, like a, like a light for when you're on, on, on the streets, like red is a trouble, you're in trouble, yellow, that's okay, green, it's okay. Uh, but that's, you know, that can have a big variation for what is the average on your farm. But uh, whenever we are adding uh, a decad diet, uh, that's a big concern because especially, you know, I think from, from the past on ammonium sulfate and other uh, raw materials were being used, you could have more effect on that intake being uh, reduced because of those products. And then people really got kind of, I don't know, but kind of afraid of the technique. Yeah. And now in that, you know, with Jeffy Goff and a lot of other research that got much more explained, right? Even the, the, the formula and try to identify what are the minerals there are more acidifying than others. Um, so uh, we talk about that technique and, uh, and I know that you have a paper coming out about it as well? Yeah, we do. It should be out in, in the next three or four months, I think. But um, that, that's um, kind of looking at acidification versus the low calcium diet approach. And we showed pretty, pretty positive effects of the acidification in a controlled energy diet, which is something that nobody's really looked at before. So it, it, um, it really opened my eyes. I guess I, we'd been uh, um, uh, working with the partial acidification idea for many years with the controlled energy diets. And it seemed to, you know, it was effective in preventing milk fevers, but we didn't really, uh, we weren't really considering subclinical hypocalcemia. And I, I think that um, as we've looked in a couple of experiments, uh, we had a lot more subclinical hypocalcemia and that was causing lower dry matter intakes after calving and, um, you know, probably a higher incidence of some other health issues than we would like to see. So I think the, the acidification is still, we have to look at that as the gold standard for, um, for how to manage calcium. And, you know, people want to take the easier way out and not have to measure urine pHs every week. And, and I, that's understandable, but, you know, when, when it's the best technique, uh, sometimes you have to, you just have to accept that that's part of the management necessary. Transition cow trial that we did with room protect amino acids, we, as a management practice, we use acidification and we were measuring uh, urine pH and uh, we kind of, you know, tested two different strips uh, against the pH meter, right? And the correlation is amazing. You know, it's, uh, mm. it's fairly uh, easy and with very good confidence, you, farmers, you know, they can use those uh, urine strips, yeah. measure the urine pH and it's not very, but what I say is not very easy to make sure things you are adding in a diet are working or not, you know, so directly. But so that's kind of a uh, one strategy that you can really check, right? Um, one thing in, uh, at that trial, I remember you had, you know, a decad or acidification with or without calcium, right? Uh, and that calcium was at barely 2% of the dry matter intake. Yeah. Uh, so one who could think about about two percent is it's it's a lot of space yeah. within a TMR, right? Uh, but at that trial, proof of concept, right? Just trying to understand how calcium is playing that role. Uh, uh, 
calcium carbonate was used, right? Correct. Uh, so do you ha do you get that question kind of uh, why two percent or uh, why calcium carbonate? I've had both of those questions. I think the the amount is um, um, so the the recommendation that the the company that we were working with was using was 180 grams per day, and so we wanted to make sure we were not shorting that and actually bumped it up to the two percent, as you say, and we had, we had intakes of of over 200 grams per day up to up to about 220 grams per day i think and so one thing we showed there was that it wasn't really negative for intake uh, in fact it was better than the the um, acidified diet without calcium added is there a space for a different source of calcium so you can perhaps have more space for other things in the diet yeah i think that's a that's a good point and um I know Tom Overton at Cornell has, has just looked at that in a recent experiment. I don't remember the details, but uh, I think the, the source of calcium is is uh, an interesting question, both if, if it continues to be shown that it's an important part of the uh, acidification strategy, but also um, uh, from economics and, and other reasons as well. So I think that's an area that's, that's um, just beginning to have some research attention. And we discuss in this uh, paper here, this symposium review, is that uh, most of the time we try to put together data and we do have available the uh, meal equivalents or we have how negative those diets are. And we try to, to make correlations with that information and how cows perform. However, there are not a lot of research out there that with the diet uh, uh, negativity or meal equivalent is providing as well urine pH. So it's fairly common that you can find two diets with the same um, um, number for DCAD. Both diets can be minus 15 and one can be at one certain urine pH and the other one cannot be as effective and with a higher urine pH just based on other things that impact the cows eating or not that whole diet, right? Very true. So we had to go very negative on the, the, the um, calculated DCAD or, or the DCAD determined on, on chemical composition that we had. We were down minus uh, 24 to get the urine pH in the range of 575 to 6 where we wanted it. And I know that, you know, in, in other experiments you often would not see anywhere close to that low but we were we were titrating it based on the cow's response and that's that's where we had to go to so do you think that if you targeted minus six or minus 6.5 you would decrease the amount of impact you saw on, on the health of those cows you, you know i think one of the problems if you don't acidify aggressively is then you have a greater number of cows that are going to be up in the range where you're not getting them um, effectively acidified. So, you know, you have your normal variation of, of cow responses and you get the, the high end of the cows then on urine pH is going to be in the range where maybe it's not as effective. So that's, that's one reason I think that, you know, if you're going to do it, do it aggressively and do it uh, so that you know you're doing it correctly. And I think the, the you know, the, the 
target that we had surely seemed to to work very well with our cows. And we had a chance in uh, another paper to look into a little bit more on the reproductive side of things and yeah, very how, interesting. Yeah, uterine recovery and uh, follicular dynamics were happening on those cows from your experiment, and that was uh, very interesting. Where you know our trial was not designed for that we didn't have enough cows for pregnancy evaluations but when we ran um, uh, um, stats for that right on the odds ratio or even survival analysis but again we we are not with that power uh, the same thing when we are we are not really in the with the power to report any diseases but mm -hmm. we have to do anyway right right because everybody asks about it uh, so on this side, and uh, seems like you know the cows that had the the decad negative decad plus the calcium, they got pregnant or they tended to get pregnant before the other two treatments. And there were we were able to do uterine biopsies, and we really saw that the endometrium was really different. And and it kind of makes sense, right? Because if you think about calcium metabolism and how is that. Uh, involved in cell regeneration and recovery and muscle contraction and everything that right. it kind of makes a lot of sense and uh yeah. yeah and and i think it helps also with the uh, inflammatory response uh on cows and being able to recover a little bit faster than whenever the cows have a negative decay without calcium or the control that was just a normal yeah. positive or fairly just a little bit positive uh decad before calving and yeah. that's kind of uh, not maybe it's not a surprise but uh you know is is it better it is better not to do the decad or then to do the decad without the calcium and it it kind of was very interesting how those cows had a little bit more score for vaginal score that could, you know, like the, some kind of um, um, purulent vaginal discharge, how we say, PVD. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be a good idea to do a negative DCAT diet and you don't bump the calcium up, right? right. It was interesting that in our study there that the, the repro side, the things that you measured related to, the, to reproductive function was actually the most clearly affected by calcium. We had... Um, you know the, the the mean melt production was was higher for the diet with the extra calcium, but it wasn't significant. Uh, again, just not enough cows. Um, so there was really very few things that were that were significantly affected by the calcium in the production part of the experiment. But you clearly showed the effect of the additional calcium on the on the aspects related to to reproduction. So I think that's a that's an important point. I think as we as we go forward with sciences, we got to be looking kind of at the at some point we have to be bringing all these aspects into the equation because we may be missing part of the story about how the cows are are responding or how they're partitioning nutrients towards um, you know towards the immune system or towards reproductive recovery or or not. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's a it's an interesting example of trying to, to look at the whole picture. And I think you measured calcium excreted in urine, didn't you? Yeah, we did, yeah. And, and that goes up pretty high as soon as you start doing the negative decad, right? 
that does. And it went up even higher with the additional calcium. So that's kind of the, the concept is that you increase the flux of calcium going through the system. Doesn't change the concentrations necessarily, but there's just more moving through the, uh, the cow all the time. And that's, that's helping prepare then for the, the uh, changes that are necessary at calving where that increased flux now it's the, the, the kidney shuts off that urinary excretion and now that extra calcium is available to, to counteract the, the immediate drop in calcium from, from calving and the start of milk production. Yeah, that was very interesting. And you also had, I think one very cool stuff was you were able to measure uh, calcium, not just total calcium um, in plasma, but also you measured uh, ionized calcium, right? Correct. And yep. fairly early uh, after calving or around calving, what's kind of sometimes is a little bit hard to see, right? Yeah, so we looked at, um, we looked at calcium uh, as soon as possible after calving, and then we looked at it one day and two days and four days. And some of the, the research that's, that's come out recently from, uh, from the group at Cornell is, is looking at you know the rate of recovery of calcium being more important than that drop on, on the day of calving. So we found that the, you know, the ionized calcium on day one was a pretty good indicator of, of what was happening. And then the total calcium on day two was also um, was a, a, a pertinent indicator of how the cows were responding. So the having both ionized calcium, which is what's actually active in the cow, and the total calcium, I think helps tell the the, the complete story. And they're not um, they're not extremely well correlated in that time right around calving. And so you can't just um, say that ionized is a certain percentage of total calcium because it it doesn't it's not. Uh, true to that at, at, as things are changing around the time of calving. So having both of them is, is very helpful in looking at hypocalcemia. Are they able to reestablish homeostasis with calcium? And it, it seems from some of their work that uh, cows that are not able to do that by two days after calving are the ones that go on to have problems. Mm -hmm.